Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. And in the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack. And you can imagine how the brothers looked at Benjamin and then they thought, you just got us in a lot of trouble. You know, how could you do something so stupid as to steal that cup? You just made it so that now we're going to be slaves down here for the rest of our lives. So when it says that in verse 13, they rent their clothes, it shows how they all knew that Benjamin just got them into a lifetime of trouble. Now, that's Joseph's part two. That's the part two of his test. That's the part two called the you got us in trouble test. And it was all designed to see whether they repented or not. So when the brothers came back, Joseph looked very carefully to see if any of the brothers had that, you know, blame look at Benjamin. How could you? I hate you for getting us all in trouble. And they didn't. They didn't. And so now Joseph has seen that the brothers have passed the repentance test of part one of you are loved and honored more than us. And Joseph didn't see any envy. That was great. And now he's thrilled that they passed that part one test, the repentance. And now he's seen that the brothers have passed the repentance test part two, which is you got us in trouble. And he didn't see any hatred or blame Benjamin. So again, he's thrilled to see that the brothers passed the part two of the repentance test. And he's watching them because they've been falsely accused and imprisoned at this point. And did that ever happen to Joseph? <laughs> you know. He was falsely accused and imprisoned because of part of his wife. So he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like. So he set it up. He set him up. He set up the scenario of them being falsely accused and about to become imprisoned so that he gets an opportunity to see how they're going to respond. Now, the brothers had said in verse 10 that the person who stole the cup, that that person should be put to death. But also, we will all become slaves. So that's what the brothers said. You find the one who stole the cup, he dies, we all become slaves. But in verse 10, and Joseph, he instructed the steward exactly what to say, and the steward does not accept their proposal. He says no, but he modifies it, he changes it, and he says in verse 10, he said, now also let it be according to your words, he with whom it shall be found shall be my servant, and you'll be blameless, and you'll be blameless. So Joseph has said, the situation will be that the person who stole the cup, he will become the slave and the others will go free. And this is now part three. This is the third part of Joseph's repentance test where Joseph has set it up so that one brother is gonna be the slave and the others will go free. Now, 
How did that turn the clock back for Joseph to see if the brothers repented in the past? How did that do that? What happened in the past? Yeah. All right. They walked away. And that was in Genesis 37, 28. They're by the Midianites, merchantmen. They drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit. They sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver and brought Joseph into Egypt. So Joseph has again wonderfully, successfully turned the clock back 25 years to where Joseph is now playing the role of the Midianites and Benjamin is playing the role of Joseph. So here we are more than two decades later. One brother becomes a slave and the other brothers are free. They're free to abandon the one brother that became a slave. That's what they did 25 years ago. They sold the one, one was a slave, and they were free to abandon him and walk away. So by setting up this same scenario where one brother, Benjamin, becomes a slave, and the other brothers are free to walk away, abandon him, Joseph now has now set up an opportunity to see if the brothers have repented and if they're going to do the same thing that they did 25 years ago to him or act differently. And we learned that time from Reuben saying so, that Joseph cried to them for mercy. And we can be sure that as Joseph was carried away slave, Joseph was begging them, don't abandon me. Don't do this. I'm your brother. So here Joseph has set up the scenario where Benjamin now is the slave and, and they can leave Egypt. They're free to walk out. They can abandon Benjamin just like they abandoned Joseph to the Midianites and, and who carried him down to Egypt to become a slave. And just look at how the brothers passed this part three of the repentance test in verse 16, which says, and Judah said, what shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. So in the past, Joseph watched his brothers abandon him and walk away, abandon him to slavery. And so he wants to see now if they repented. But Joseph, and he sets up this scenario where, like I said, Benjamin is a slave and they've got the opportunity to go, walk, abandon him. And he's thrilled Joseph is thrilled to see that the brothers have really changed now. And there's this third test where Judah rises up, he speaks for all of them. He says, no, we will not abandon Benjamin to be slave. If he's a slave, we'll be slave also. And he sees this, that they would rather become slaves than to abandon Benjamin. And Joseph is thrilled. He's thrilled because he's seen his brothers really have changed They really have repented. They're not doing the same things that they did in the past. I mean, these are the three key events in Joseph's life where he had these problems with his brothers. When Joseph was honored and loved by his father, then they envied him. And when he reported on their bad deeds, he got them in trouble. They hated him. And when he became a slave, they walked away. They abandoned him. These were the three defining moments in Joseph's life in relation to his brothers. And it was the moments when his brothers envied him and when his brothers hated him and when his brothers abandoned him. And these are the three sins that his brothers committed against Joseph. Envy, hatred, abandonment. And now Joseph asked the question, have my brothers changed? 
Have my brothers repented? Have they rid themselves of these sins of envy, hatred, and abandonment? So from this, this marvelous plan that he's executed here, where he set up Benjamin to take his place, and it, to be envied, hated, and abandoned, and then from behind his disguise as the Egyptian governor, he sits there, watches, and evaluates them very carefully to make sure they're no longer harboring these sins of envy, hatred, and abandonment. And they have repented, and that's wonderful. And this has opened the door. This has opened the door. This is why this part of this history is so important here in chapter 44, because without this, there's no door open. But now this repentance on their part has opened the door of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. No repentance, no reconciliation. Their repentance has now made them ready to be reconciled with Joseph. Because of their repentance, the door's been opened for a reconciliation. That's the same that's true of every person. We come to the Lord Jesus Christ as DRS, dirty, rotten sinners. And we have to repent of our sin before we can be saved. Even if it means crying out to God to help us to change, we need to get a divorce from the sin that we had previously been married to. And so what we've seen here is just an illustration of the importance of repentance. And this is true for everyone today. Unless there's repentance, there can be no reconciliation to God. This is what the Lord Jesus meant when he said in Luke 13.3, Luke 13.3, I tell you, nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's why John the Baptist, his whole message was, you gotta get ready for the Lord. And he said in Matthew 3.2, Matthew 3.2, repent ye, for the kingdom of hand is as at hand is right there. That's why the whole message of the gospel in the book of Acts, like in Acts 2.38, is repentance. Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And in Acts 3.19, repent ye therefore, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So if a person thinks that all they got to do is just say some 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 sinner's prayer, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been a sinner, please forgive me, let me into heaven. And, and if they think they can continue in their sin and just simply receive the Lord Jesus as Savior and not be cast into hell, they're wrong. Because just as we see here with these brothers, there has to be repentance before there can be re- reconciliation. And so that's why Joseph created this scenario to put these brothers, turn the clock back, put them in the same situation they were in 25 years ago. And so when we've sinned, God creates similar situations for us, just like Joseph did for his brothers, and so that God can see if he changed or not. So what we've seen in these three tests is it shows us the repentance. What is repentance? It's acting differently when you're in the same situation. That's what happened with these brothers. When you're faced with the same temptation, it's not acting the same. Now, I know that it's not exactly the same situation that that here in the life of the brothers. I mean, there is the father factor in this, but keep in mind that Joseph is for his brothers. He's not setting up situations for them to fail. He's setting up situations because he wants them to succeed. He's trying to help his brothers, and he's thrilled with their performance is different, not the same as it was 25 years ago. Okay, now we understand the three parts of Joseph's plan. 
And so now when you look at them and what actually happened, it's not just, you know, looking at, that's a nice story. That's interesting story. That's entertaining. You know, it's not because now we know what he's doing. So he's instructing his steward exactly what he should say in verses four to five. When you overtake them, say, wherefore have you rewarded evil for good? Is not this in which my Lord drinketh, whereby indeed he divineth, he done evil in so doing. So he tells the steward, you accuse the brothers of rewarding evil for good. Now, when Joseph said that to accuse them of rewarding evil for good, we can imagine how Joseph was thinking of that time when he came from his father to bring them their father's love, their father's concern, probably some nice things, I don't know. But when they were way off, a long ways away, feeding the sheep, and that was good that the 17-year-old Joseph brought to them. And what did they do? They threw him into a pit and they sold him as a slave. That was rewarding evil for good. Now, the ultimate rewarding evil for good was when the Lord Jesus Christ, the heavenly Joseph, came to earth from God the Father for the good of man. And what happened? Man took the Lord Jesus Christ and crucified him. That was the ultimate rewarding evil for good. And then he says in verse 5, the steward was instructed to state specifically that the cup is not this in which my Lord drinketh. So the cup was specifically identified as the one in which the governor drinks. And the reason for that was because he was painting a picture here. And the picture was that, ah, that was the time when the brothers saw that valuable cup at lunch that the governor was drinking out of. And he said, hmm, that'd be nice to swipe. That'd be nice to take before I leave. So this accusation was to be that that when they were kindly invited as guests into the home of the governor, that they saw this valuable silver cup when he was drinking out of it, and that's when they they said, and that's when the, the plan was hatched, we'll steal that before we go. As a matter of fact, it's implying here, too, that the expensive cup was purposefully displayed, you know, maybe ostentatiously, drink that, put that up there, you see it, you know, make the light shine on it or something. It's a trap. It was a trap to see if they would take the bait. In other words, the idea is that the steward is kind of implying that the governor kind of did all this ostentatious showing of the cup here. Oh, I'm thirsty. Let me get my expensive cup here. Okay, I'll put it right there. And it was all set up as a planned trap to see whether or not these really were thieves and that they would take the bait or not. And then he said, this is not just a silver cup. This cup is special. Because this cup has magical powers, when he said in verse 5, whereby indeed he divineth. So the Hebrew word there for divineth is the word whispering, whispering. That's what it means in Hebrew. So this was an occult practice where the future was predicted by what happened to liquid inside of the cup when you dropped a little stone into it. So you drop a stone into the cup, they did that, in the liquid, and then they studied how the formation of the waves would be in the cup or the bubbles, and then from that they predicted the future. Now, (laughs) obviously, Joseph didn't do that, but this accusation was further to increase the seriousness of the crime because it was not just a cup of valuable silver, but this was a valuable because of its, its magical powers. So the theft was now construed to be an offense against Egypt's religions. So the plan here is executed in verse 6. Now, they mention the word God. 
here. They said, God forbid. Now, they weren't in the practice of saying the word God. <laughs> you know, they were kind of avoiding that term, that name, God. And the only other time they said it before was in, in uh, chapter 42, verse 28, when they were talking among themselves and they said, what is this that God has done to us? So this accusation that they get right there as they're leaving town, they got out of town, they're shocked and they're indignant. And now they use God. They said, God forbid that thy servants should do anything, verse seven. So in other words, when they said, wherefore saith my Lord these words, they're saying, what are you saying? Why are you saying these words? They were really indignant. This is the same steward that had told them to have peace in God. And now the brothers are using the name of God saying, God forbid that the servant should do this. Okay, next the brothers, they try to reason with the steward in verse eight. And they said, behold, the money which we found in our sack's mouth, we brought again unto the other land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of the Lord's house silver and gold? They said, look, we could have just pocketed the money back in Canaan that we found in our sacks, but we knew that it belonged to you. So look how noble we are. We brought it all the way back, all the way back. And they're emphasizing how they brought it all the way back from the land of Canaan. We came a long way to return your money. We're like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> they were saying, you know, who was working as a store clerk, and when he overcharged the customer three cents, the famous story is he walked six miles to return it. He says, that's who we are. And they're so self-confident that the cup would not be found, that without thinking, they say, whoever you find the cup in, in verse nine, he can die and we'll be the slaves. So just like the Lord Jesus Christ before Pilate, the people were so self-confident that the Lord Jesus was not God's Messiah, that without thinking, in Matthew 27, 22, when Pilate said, what shall I do to Jesus, which is called Christ, Messiah? They all say to him, let him be crucified. The governor said, why? What evil hath he done? They cried out the more, let him be crucified. Pilate saw he could prevail not. So he, rather than a tumult was made, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, may this of the blood of this person see you to it. They all answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he releases Barabbas and and scourges the Lord and delivers him to be crucified. They're not thinking. They just say, you know, these things. Now, the steward had already been told by Joseph that Benjamin would become a slave and the rest should be freed. So he modified the proposal. And as we've seen, this was the part three. And so now he sees that they don't abandon Benjamin, which is very good. Now we read that what they did to show that they didn't have the cup, it says in verse 11, they speedily, took down every man his sack. So he goes there speedily. They just jumped off of those donkeys into the ground and got their sacks open in any searches. Because they're thinking, the quicker we can get out of this accusation, this is ridiculous, this charge, the better it's going to be. So he starts to search the bags, and it says in verse 12 that he starts with the eldest and goes down to the youngest. So there the steward is. He's got 11 sacks to search, and he starts with the oldest, Reuben, and he works his way down, I mean, he's following Joseph's instruction in all this, just to drag out the suspense of it all, and it's to leave Benjamin's for the last. And he thoroughly searches Reuben's sack. He's, you know, you can see him there digging from the top all the way to the bottom, the suspense. Turns up nothing. Imagine the brothers sitting there saying, you know, we told you so. <laughs> Why would we steal anything from the governor? We're innocent. There's nothing. This is a huge waste of time. 
We told you you'd find, wouldn't find the cup. Okay, so then the steward then moves to the next brother's sack, goes through the same thing, all the suspense, nothing is found, irritation more on the brothers, same, ten times they go through this, you know. Finally gets to the, to Benjamin, and we can imagine they're getting pretty indignant. He gets the tenth one, Benjamin, and, and then the shock of the discovery comes in verse 12. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. That's such a shock, totally unexpected. Boy, talk about taking the wind out of your sails. They find that. And there's no more words on their part. No more justifications. You don't hear any more words. You know what you hear at that point? You hear the sound of clothes ripping. (laughs) Each one takes it, rips it. You know, all at the same time, the tearing of clothes, the renting of their clothes. It was a sign of deep mourning. And it was really a statement where they don't have to say anything, but they're saying, God's got a hold of us now. There's no escape there's no words needed now. All we need is deep, 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 heartfelt repentance. This is really great. And none of them turn to Benjamin and say, you know, how could you do this? How could you get us in trouble? They all say, okay, uh, fine. And none of them say, okay, take Benjamin. We're out of here. They don't say. And so, you know, this recreating the past, which Joseph has done, is how God graciously deals with us in our lives. What a person does is his first response to a bad situation, it's natural human nature, is to escape without making things right, just like the brothers tried to get rid of Joseph. And therefore, there's a change to a new job to get rid of that unreasonable boss. Or there's a change to a new neighborhood to get rid of that awful neighbor. Or there's a change to a new marriage to get rid of that terrible spouse. But just as Joseph made it so that the brothers had a new envied brother who got them in trouble. Then God does it so that that new job has a new unreasonable boss. And God makes it so that new neighborhood has a new awful neighbor. And God makes it so that new marriage has a new terrible spouse. And God does this to help us to not seek to escape to a new circumstance, but to find a new repentance. And that's what Joseph did here to help his brothers to find this new repentance. So now they get back in verse 13, they get back to Joseph's house there. And what do they find? In verse 14, Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house and he was yet there. Oh, they fell before him on the ground. So Joseph is there, I wonder why. He's waiting for them. And as soon as they see Joseph, they fall down on their face to the ground before Joseph. And there's no more talk about how they're true men and how, but now everything has changed. Now it's really kind of a plea for mercy. Now there's a kind of a a hope in the goodness of Joseph to not judge them so harshly. And so it says they all fell down on the ground in front of Joseph. And that's the time of the complete fulfillment of the dream where Joseph as a 17 year old, he saw his brothers bowing before them. Now they're bowing as slaves. It's not just bowing a respect for him, which is what they did first, but now they're bowing to him as his slaves. And so when he sees this, it's almost like God taps Joseph on the shoulder and said, uh, you remember that? Remember that dream I gave you? Well, here it is. Here's the fulfillment of it. Okay, next time we're going to see how Judah takes the lead and speaks for the brothers. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, Lord, being our heavenly Joseph and uh, bringing us Lord, the goodness of God leadeth us to repentance. Thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Join Tom Cantor, Ray Comfort, Dr. Michael Brown at the Israel Restoration Ministries Jewish Evangelism and Training Conference happening in San Diego on Friday evening, February 9th and Saturday morning, February 10th at the Creation Museum in Santee, California. Learn from great Bible teachers like radio host Tom Cantor from Friendship with God, as well as world-renowned Jewish evangelist Ray Comfort, radio host Dr. Michael Brown, director of Jews for Jesus Israel Dan Sered, Friends of Israel field director Steve Herzig, Pastor Leo Giovanetti, and many others. Cost for this two-day conference is only $25, which covers all speakers, food, and materials. So register today to hear Tom Cantor, Ray Comfort, Dr. Michael Brown, Jews for Jesus, and Friends of Israel on how we can reach the lost people of America and Israel on February 9th and 10th. Call us at 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104, or sign up at reachisrael.com, reachisrael.com.